Well, no doubt many of you are hoping, even expecting, that you're going to get one of these today or tomorrow. If you don't, somebody's going to pay a dear price for the fact that you didn't. (laughs) Gifts are something that just seems so germane to Christmas. We look forward to it. We anticipate them. Uh, But, you know, if you look back on the gifts that you've gotten over the years, I have a hunch that perhaps the gifts that mean the most to us, that we have the best memories of, are the ones that were a total surprise when we opened them. That what was in there was not what we were expecting. But it was something that we needed, something that we wanted. And the fact that that person was able to look into our lives to the place that they were able to discern that's what they need or that's what they want or I think this would really help them out. That, that commitment to us, that love for us, that discernment, that putting that time and energy into us really meant a lot to us. And so it's the surprise gifts that often mean the most. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was born, God was up to a divine surprise. It wasn't just the surprise of the angels being there and all of that. There was a surprise built in to the way He announced His Son's birth. And that surprise says some profound truths to us about what God wants to do in our lives. If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 8 and 9, and as you're turning there to set the stage for the story, Caesar Augustus is the Roman emperor. Now, that is significant because Caesar Augustus was the first Roman emperor who set up what became known as the cult of of the emperor, and that is that he regarded himself as a god, and he begins to move the Roman Empire in the direction of recognizing him as a god and worshiping him as a god. Needless to say, he was a very humble man. He sets up various people to rule all over the world, and in particular in the nation of Israel. He sets up a guy named Quirinius to be the governor of that general area. And he also sets up a king whose name is Herod. Now, it's important to understand that Herod is the king of the nation of Israel at that time, but he is king by virtue of fact that the Roman emperor has set him into that position. And so it is because of Rome's rule and power that he rules. Caesar Augustus has made a rule. He wants to know how many people are in his kingdom. And so he has declared that everybody has to migrate back from the town, the city, the place that they are from in order to participate in a census. So this census will tell him how many people he has in his kingdom. It is also a very strong reminder to his subjects and particularly to the nation of Israel that you are ruled by the Roman emperor. You don't rule yourself. You are under my subjugation and you're going to have to pay your taxes Because of this census is your way of saying that we owe it all to Rome. So it is in this context that this story takes place. And so Mary and Joseph make their way from Nazareth, which is up in the northern part of Israel, 
down to the southern part to Bethlehem because that is the ancestral home of Joseph and Mary both. Let's join the story in verse 8. Jesus has been born in a stable, laid in a manger, which was just a feed trough for animals. And there the story begins to unfold. And in the same region, verse 8, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, my sermon outline is containing your bulletin. I invite you, if you would, to follow along. The first truth I want you to see in this passage is what I call the surprise of valuing. The surprise of valuing. This is what I mean by that. Notice verse 8. It says they were in that country shepherds. Now, we hear the Christmas story all the time, and we see the figurines and all that, and it seems like it makes a nice story of which it does. But who were these shepherds? Shepherds were considered peasants in those days. They were at the bottom of the socioeconomic scale. They had absolutely no political power in the system of that day. They had no power among the religious leadership of that day. In fact, they were considered to be unclean according to the standards that the various synagogues and so forth followed. They were considered outcasts. And when I say sinners, I don't just mean sinners in the sense of the variety of sin. They were considered sinners in the worst sense of the word. Out of power, out of sync, just a bunch of poor peasants looked down on by most of the people who were in the society and culture of that day. And it's fascinating to me that when God went to announce that night that his son had been born, he went to shepherds. He did not go to the governor, nor to the king, nor to the emperor. You see, power, prestige, and money often hinder people from receiving the message that God would like to give them. But when you don't have any of that, and you're just sitting out in a farm in a field somewhere, you're open to whatever God wants to say to you. Folks, sometimes when God takes us in our lives through periods of humbling, and we feel like the Lord has stripped everything out of our lives, He's doing that for a reason, because He's saying, I want to get a message across to you. It's not that I don't love you and it's I don't care for, about you. It's that I do love you, I do care about you, but i got to clear everything out of your life so that you're going to listen to me and hear what I've got to say to you. Just roll with the Lord when He begins to do that in your life. Now notice verse 8, it says that they were out in the field. From March to November, the sheep literally lived in the field 24-7. And as a shepherd... You had to live in the field with your sheep 24-7. They were like farmers, except they didn't get to go back to the house at nighttime. They had to stay out there with the flock day in and day out and all night long. So they're out there doing what they're supposed to be doing, providing for them. If they had done an Israeli version of dirty jobs back in those days, shepherds would have been at the top of the list of what it meant to have a dirty job in those days. You're out there living with your sheep, which means you don't exactly smell great. You're taking care of them. You have to protect them against robbers. You also have to protect them against wild animals. This feel out there where they were, David, years and years before that, who became the king of Israel when he was growing up as a shepherd, had to literally defend his sheep against a lion and a bear. So that's the kind of work that you had to commit to with your sheep. 
And you had to, of course, feed them and do all the other wonderful things that shepherds have to do with their sheep that makes it a dirty job. They were also on the move all the time because you could not stay in one field constantly or that sheep would eat the field down to nothing. So you were on the move with your sheep. These guys are out there this night doing the tedious, boring work that they do every night of taking care of their sheep. There is nothing in this passage to indicate to us that these shepherds were religious men, that they were sitting out there in the field discussing biblical prophecy, anticipating what was going to happen next. Please, I want you to get the feel for what's going on in this story. These guys are out there doing what we would call today secular work, probably telling jokes like guys like to tell jokes between each other, talking guy talk with each other, just, you know, doing what they got to do, bored stiff with these dumb sheep that they're having to take care of all the time. Most of them probably had not gone in a synagogue since they were a child because they walked in, they looked like a shepherd, they smelled like a shepherd, they talked like a shepherd, which meant they would not have been welcome. And who wants to go and just have everybody look down the nose at you because you're not religious enough, etc.? And so these guys are just sitting out there doing their thing in their own way and God decides these are the guys that I'm going to and then I'm going to invade their space, break into their lives and they're going to be the first people to find out that my son has been born tonight. And why did God do that? Because he valued them so much. He valued them not because they were religious. He valued them not because they claimed to be great followers of His. He valued them just because they were human beings that He had made, He had created. And you see, God loves you and cares about you and values you not because you're religious, not because you can talk the Bible, but just because you're a human being. You don't have to earn His love. You don't have to work up to His love. You don't have to be a church person in order to qualify for Him to value you. Those guys were not church people. They weren't synagogue people. They were just secular, rough and tough shepherds. But God says, that's who I'm going to. And that's who I'm going to break my message out. Because they count to me. They may not count to the synagogue leaders. They may not count to the Roman rulers. But they count to me. And you count to God. The issue is not how religious you are. The issue is not how well you can talk the Bible. The issue is you got blood flowing through your veins. You are a created human being and you count to God. That's why he showed up with the shepherds that night. Now he showed up to them and they were powerless. Have you noticed in our culture how we put all the attention on the people who got money or who got power? There's a string of TV series out there called The Housewives of. And it's Atlanta or New York or New Jersey, etc. Have you ever heard of The Housewives of Roanoke? Or The Housewives of Rocky Mount? You probably never will. They pick out the big cities that have got money and renown, and that's where they go. They don't bother with places that they would consider small or poor, etc. 
Why? Because in our culture, we put all the attention on the people and the places that they got the money and seemingly are important and that have got power. If you look at the lives that they follow in the news, it's mostly people who got money and power. Have you realized how many detective shows are consumed with how rich people get murdered? They won't give a flip about how poor people get murdered, but we're really interested in how rich people get murdered. I mean, if somebody comes and stabs you in a bedroom and you got cotton sheets that you fall on, who gives a flip? But man, their satin sheets are made out of silk. It's really something. You really got to cue in on that kind of a murder. And so that's what we use. Money just says this is who's important. And you see, when you get to this story here of these folks, these shepherds, everybody in the culture of that day said they were not important. And I think one of the reasons that God went to shepherds that night was he was trying to say to the shepherds, but he's also trying to say to us, I don't value people the same way everybody else values people. I don't work off the same system everybody else works off. I don't walk into town and say, if you got money, then you're important to me. If you got power, I'm going to spend some time with you. He walks up to people that everybody else is ignoring, have no money, no power, and he says, you're important to me me and you're valuable to me and he walked up to those shepherds and he said you are very valuable to me just because you don't have power just because nobody's going to make a documentary on you or put a television camera in front of your face just because if you're on Facebook you'll be lucky if you get five friends who sign up on your Facebook page you are important to me and by the way if God signs up on your Facebook page that's really all that matters Now, notice next, the surprise of God's nearness. Verse 8, it says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field. Notice that phrase, in the same region. The shepherds were about probably the length of two football fields from the manger to where they were keeping their sheep. In the same area, God was at work. The shepherds didn't need to bring God to Bethlehem. They just needed to meet God in Bethlehem. You see, God was at work all around them. They just needed to discern it and recognize it. And folks... The message here is that God is at work all around us. We don't have to bring God into our town. We don't have to bring God into our lives. God's at work all around us. We just got to get in touch with what he's doing. We just got to discern what he is up to. Often a set of circumstances around life will tell us that God is not at work. The shepherds sitting out there that night looked at Rome and saw Caesar setting himself up as a god. They were going to have to pay taxes to the Roman government like everybody else. They had a king in Herod that it was said of him it was better to be Herod's pig than to be his son because Herod was so cruel he'd been known to kill his, one of his own sons. These are the kind of rulers that these shepherds had. Everything in their circumstances said that God had absent the stage he wasn't around. But God was big time at work. And when you feel like God's not at work in your life, don't throw in the talent, don't give up, because God is most at work when he seems like he's most absent and not at work. Just give him time 
and be ready and be on the lookout to discern what he's doing. Now notice verse 9. It says, as an angel appeared to them. I want you to look at the verb appeared there. Most of the Christmas cards that you've ever gotten have got the shepherds here and an angel up in the air talking down to the shepherd. The problem with that is it does not square with the Greek language that's used here at all. The word appeared here is a Greek word that means to stand beside somebody. In fact, that word is used several other places in the New Testament, and every time it's used, it speaks of somebody standing beside somebody else. So the idea here is not that the angel was floating around up in the sky somewhere, it's that the shepherds are there with their sheep, and this angel appears and he's looking eye to eye, toe to toe with them. No wonder they got so scared. I mean, you know, you shake you up enough if an angel's up in the air, but if an angel is like eye nose level with you, what was God trying to say? By taking one of his angels and coming down and looking them straight in the eye and saying, you need to go to Bethlehem, the Son of God's been born tonight. God was trying to say, that's how close I am to you. That's how near I am to you. Just like this angel, you can breathe on him. That's how close I am to you tonight. That's my nearness. They're in the, the boring part of their lives. God broke into it and stepped right up into their personal space with his message. And listen, folks, what God is, is doing in our lives, he's trying to say to us in this story is, I'm not floating up here somewhere in your life. I'm not off in outer space somewhere. I'm not locked up in the church somewhere. I'm as close to your life as if your breath could touch my face. That's how near I am to you. Notice verse 9. It says that the glory of the Lord shone where? Around them. Not just way up in the sky, but around them. The presence of God was around them. You see, the significance of what God's doing here this night is that always before in Israel's history, the Lord was up on a mountain, and Moses had to go up the mountain to get to God. He was behind the veil in the tabernacle and in the temple, and only the great high priest could go there on one day of the year. God was always so separated. But this night, the presence of God, the glory of God's not up on a mountain anymore. It's not behind a veil. It's right there where they are. It's surrounding them. And God's trying to say to us through this story, listen, the birth of my son is all about Jesus coming and being right there with you. I'm not up in a mountain anymore. I'm not behind a veil anymore. I haven't separated myself from you anymore. I have come to you as close as you will let me get to you. Now, I want to share some fascinating archaeology with you. And I'm going to tie it all together, so be patient with me. If you look up on the screen, six miles east of Bethlehem is what is called the Herodian. It was built by King Herod. At the time prior to Jesus' birth, it was a fortress and a castle and would eventually serve as the mausoleum of King Herod. It had a polished staircase leading up to it of 200 steps. It had four towers from which you could view the countryside. That is an aerial view looking down at some of the excavated remains of the Herodian. It towered there on the desert of Judea. From Bethlehem 
you could see the Herodian. In fact, the Herodian, named after King Herod, was in the, literally in the shadow Bethlehem was of the Herodian. It had a bathhouse in it. You'll bring the next slide up. A bathhouse, and that sort of gives you what a cut of it looked like. It had a bathhouse in it that featured frescoes, tremendous frescoes. It was sort of like a combination of the White House and Buckingham Palace in one. Today it is a state park in Israel. And if you travel to Israel, you can go to the Herodian. You can see where they've excavated Herod's tomb there. You can see some of the various remains of the building there. He literally took a hill and built a castle on top of a hill. Now, the reason I'm sharing this with you is this. King Herod, who's the king, builds this magnificent palace fortress. He also builds it as a place where he's eventually going to be buried. And literally about four to five years after Jesus is born, he dies and he is buried in this mausoleum that he constructs for himself and names this beautiful place after himself called the Herodian. Now, it was the place in Judea where the powerful and the rich went. So I want you to get the picture. If you got money and you got power and you were somebody coming from Rome or coming from Jerusalem, you bypass Bethlehem and you head to the Herodian because the Herodian is where the power is. It's where the parties are held with the king. I mean, it's happening at the Herodian. It's not happening in Bethlehem. You stand in the Herodium and you look across the plain and you see Bethlehem. And people probably would have stood at one of those towers, looked across the plain, saw Bethlehem and said, look at that little dinky town over there. Man, look at what we got here. The night that Jesus was born, the Herodian is six miles away. God chooses to show up in Bethlehem on a farm, not at the Herodium. And what is God trying to say by that? First off, God's trying to say the Herodium is the glory of man, but over in this field is the glory of God. And when the glory of God wants to surround people, any old field will do. He does not need a Herodium to do it. God is saying the important stuff of what's really happening for eternity is not happening at the Herodium. It is happening over here in Bethlehem. God is trying to say, that's the glory of man, but over here is the glory of God. Oh, the Herodium was built in part to contain someday the mausoleum of King Herod. The Herodium would eventually be the place of death for the king. But Bethlehem had a cradle that held life for eternity. The one who would say, I am the life. And you see at the Herodium, a king who ruled temporarily, built a palace for him to hang out in and to be buried in. But God was saying that night, I've come near to you with one who is the ruler of life. 
Today, if you go to Israel and you go to the Herodium, they will take you up to the mausoleum area and they will show you the tomb of King Herod. And you can stand out there and you can look at where the King Herod was buried. And that grave has been filled for over 2,000 years with King Herod's remains. If you go to Jerusalem and go to the garden tomb where they buried Jesus, they will, like Herod, take you and say, this is the tomb where Jesus was buried, but they're going to do something very different at Jesus' tomb. You see, at the Herodium, they say, come in and see where he was buried. At Jesus' tomb, they're going to say, come in, but it's empty. He's not here, and he hadn't been here for 2,000 years. Have a look around. That is the difference between the Herodium and what Jesus was doing and what he was up to. And that was the message that God was saying. He came to be near to us in his life, and he came to be near to us in his victory. That's the idea of the glory of God shining around us. That night, God said to the shepherds, my glory is all around you, and you are in my presence. I value you, and you are near to me. But at the end of Jesus' life, 33 years later, entirely different scene. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He is in the last hours of his life. And there's a thief hanging beside him, condemned for what he had done. And the thief that people despised and hated and were crucifying just like they crucified Jesus one step below or several steps below the shepherds, looks over at Jesus and he says, Lord, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? All I'm asking you to do is remember me. I deserve to be on this cross. I deserve to die. My sin Put me here and I deserve to be here. Will you just remember me? And Jesus looks over at him and he says, Today, not tomorrow, not a thousand years, but today you are going to be with me in paradise. Catch what Jesus is saying. First of all, he says it's going to happen today. You don't wait on me. You don't have to wait on my love. My love is right here present today to embrace you. You value to me. You count to me. I know everybody down here is spitting at you, saying you deserve what you get, love watching you die. But what I'm saying to you right now is you belong to me from this moment on, and I'm dying for you. I came for you. I value you, though nobody else at this cross values you. Today, you will be, catch the preposition, today you will be where? With me with me in paradise. You're going to be close to me. You're going to be near me. You are going to be with me. You're not going to be with your tormentors anymore. You're not going to be with your sin anymore. You're not going to be with your law breaking anymore. You're not going to be with your shame anymore. You're not going to be with your guilt anymore. You're not going to be with the people who want to kill you anymore. You are going to be with me today in paradise because I value you. Because you are near to me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you 
that the message you gave the shepherds and the message that you gave to the thief on the cross is the same message. That you've come to be near us. And you value us. And Lord, a week from now, two weeks from now, a month from now, when Christmas is over with, it really isn't over with. Because that value continues. Jesus, you spoke those words that day. You didn't whisper them. Because you were saying to everybody on that hillside, this thief belongs to me. I claim him. Nobody else wants to claim him. But I claim him. And you say to us, regardless of our sin, regardless of how much we screw up and fail, that you love us and you claim us. But God, we got to do like that thief did. We got to claim you. We got to call out to you. We got to do like those shepherds did. We can't sit on our hillside and say, well, this is a nice and this is great and I've enjoyed this. We got to say, I got to go see him. I got to go find him. Lord, help us not to experience Christmas and miss Jesus in the process. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed in just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. And we want to invite you, if you've never given your life to Jesus, to do what that thief did and just say, Jesus, remember me. To do what those shepherds did and say, I, I just got to go see Jesus. Got to get in his presence. And so I invite you to come and give your life to Jesus. Choose to follow him. If a thief can do it, if some shepherds can do it, any of us can do it. If the Lord's speaking to you about making any other public decision to answer a call to ministry, to become a part of our church family, we invite you to come. Lord, have your way with us right now, we ask in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. Come if you will.